everyone, as we continue our studies in the Torah, and this week we begin the book of Leviticus, or Vayikra, as it's called in Hebrew. And um, what I'm going to do this morning is uh, I'm going to share with you the things that immediately come to my mind whenever someone asks me about the book of Leviticus, especially the sacrificial system. And this is a constant question I encounter with people. What about the sacrifices? Why they, They've been done away with. And, um, and often people are very happy that they've been done away with because they seemed wasteful. They seemed bloody and ugly. And, um, but anyways, there's so many misconceptions about the sacrificial system. And so, again, this is a presentation of things that go through my mind when I encounter this question, and whenever we come to the opening of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the central book of the Torah. You've got Genesis and Exodus, which are filled with action and stories, and, and um, so many of our, our great Bible stories we tell our kids come from these two books. Then after Leviticus, you have Numbers and, and Deuteronomy, which kind of reviews the entire history of Israel up to that point. But right here in the middle, you have Leviticus, where not much happens. There's very little narrative in the book of Leviticus. About the only narrative we find is in uh, chapters 8 and 9, which describes Moses inaugurating the priest, and then chapter 10, where Nadav and Avihu lose their lives by going into the Holy of Holies. Other than that, Leviticus is filled with rules, more commandments in Leviticus than any of the other four books, and uh, the discussion of the priest and the priesthood and the sacrifices. It's not a very exciting book. And if you ask most people, what is your favorite book of the Torah, they'll say Genesis or Exodus, but very few are going to say Leviticus. But as we get to the core of the Torah, we hit its spiritual essence so we should not expect a lot to happen here because it's about being. It's about who we are. It's about the essence of who Messiah is and who we are to be. And I hope that as we go through our studies of Leviticus, you will get a much clearer insight into who you are and what God is calling you to be. Now, there are two passages of Scripture I want us to keep constantly in mind as we go through these studies. And I'll continually be referring to these two passages of Scripture. The first one is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, a very familiar passage. But this is number one. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, we can't understand what Paul is appealing to us to do without the book of Leviticus. With the book of Leviticus, what he is appealing to us here for is going to be much, much clearer. And what kind of sacrifice? A living sacrifice. Holy. What does it mean to be holy? The book of Leviticus will tell us. And acceptable. What is acceptable to God? Again, Leviticus holds the key to this. Which is your spiritual worship? There's a lot of activity that takes place in churches and messianic synagogues that is called worship, 
At best, it's praise. At worst, it's just a show of fleshly entertainment. But I won't get into that. I'll avoid getting on that hobby horse of mine. But spiritual worship is something that is very rare, especially in groups of people, groups of believers. And um, spiritual worship is something that takes place in the spirit. God is spirit, and he seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And Paul says that the key to spiritual worship is becoming a living sacrifice. I often talk about soulish believers and spiritual believers. And Paul opens 1 Corinthians with the discussion of the fleshly believer, the soulish believer, and the spiritual believer. And every soulish believer I meet thinks they're spiritual because they sacrifice time, they sacrifice energy, and they talk a lot, and they're willing to do, do, do. They're filled with activity. But there's one thing they don't sacrifice or haven't sacrificed yet, and that's a sacrifice themselves. To truly become a living sacrifice and to enter into this spiritual level of fellowship with God. And then, as Wachamanese says, as obedience increases, activity decreases. Their lives become calmer, they become wiser, they become more effective with less energetic doing of things. And uh, we'll be talking about this more and more as we go through Leviticus. But anyways, we want to move on. And then he says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That only takes place when you make yourself a living sacrifice. Give yourself fully, completely to God. Then your mind can be renewed, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Not just what God's will is, as, re, as revealed in the commandments, but what is the good and acceptable and perfect to really get to the core of what God is looking for and the core of what each commandment builds itself around. Now, that's the first passage of Scripture. Here's the second passage of Scripture. And I could have picked a few uh, for this second passage, but I chose one from Revelation 20, verse 6, that they will be priests of God and of Messiah. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. Who are these people? People who are disciples of Messiah, who have given themselves fully to the Lord. You could also look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, and also at Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. I just picked this one. Now, we have to remember that the Levitical priesthood came hundreds of years after the original priesthood. There was an original priesthood that had one high priest, and that same high priest is still the high priest today. And there's a hint here in this passage as to who this person is. He's a priest, but he's one who reigns, so he's also a king. Can you think of someone who was a priest and a king long before Levi was born? There's his name. 
In Hebrew, it is two words, whereas in English, it's one. It's Melchizedek. Melchi comes from the word Melech, king. Melchi means king of, and Zedek means righteousness. Melchizedek. I'll make sure I spell it correctly. Melchizedek. We're told in, in Genesis, which is the, he's only mentioned twice in the Tanakh. The first one's in Genesis 14. And uh, Abram meets him. And Melchizedek blesses Abram. And Abram pays a tenth of everything he owns to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is then mentioned a second time in the Tanakh, later in Psalm 110, where God says that I've made you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's, that's it. No, only two places in the entire Hebrew scriptures where Melchizedek is mentioned. But though Melchizedek may occupy a very small space in the Tanakh, he occupies a very large space in the minds of the rabbis and in Jewish theology. In fact, when you come to the Greek scriptures in the book of Hebrews, at the end of chapter 5, the author of Hebrews mentions Melchizedek. And then he introduces him again at the end of chapter 6, then spends almost all of chapter 7 discussing this mystical figure and how this king of righteousness, this king of Salem, Shalom, of Jerusalem, is Yeshua. And uh, so we see that Yeshua, and this is what the author of Hebrews is expressing, he is a priest, but he wasn't a Levite, he's from the tribe of Judah. But he's a priest according to more ancient, original priesthood, of which the Levitical priesthood is a picture. So everything we will study in the book of Leviticus about priesthood and sacrifices is to help us to understand Yeshua, what it means to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, because we, too, are to be priests of God, priests of God and of Messiah. How can that be? We're not children of Levi. It's because we can be priests according to the order of Melchizedek. And our high priest is Messiah, always has been, always will be. And here I want you to remember what the key difference is between the order of Melchizedek and the order of Levi. In the Levitical priesthood, the priest brings sacrifices, and they take the sacrifices that people bring, and they offer these sacrifices. But in the Melchizedek priesthood, the priest is the sacrifice. And this is the order of which we are members. Our high priest is Yeshua who gave himself as a sacrifice for us. And as Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. So this is the priesthood of which we are a part. That is, if we give ourselves as living sacrifices. I didn't plan to share this, but I remember the day back in 1971, in the fall, it is right before my sophomore year of college, and I won't go into the details, but God apprehended my heart, 
And I did the most terrifying thing I've ever done. And I think I could find the very parking spot in the, in the parking lot at the college where this happened. Where late at night, I sat in that parking space and I put my head on the steering wheel and I gave myself to God. Again, I was terrified, but I was desperate because I saw my life coming to a fork in the road and the one fork in the road was very tempting and everything in my flesh wanted that road. But I knew also that God was real and I had just that day met someone whose life had been transformed, and I thought, that's what I want. And I had to decide, do I go this fork or do I go this one? And by God's grace, I gave my life to God. I gave him my future. I gave him my future spouse, whoever she might be, my health, whatever finances I might earn, In other words, whatever God wanted, whatever he wanted, it was all his. I was all in at that point. At that point, everything in my life changed. It was terrifying. Hardest thing I've ever done. And I encourage you not to do this lightly, but to do it with great seriousness. But I look at that point, and that's when my life really began. So, I want to be a priest. I want to reign. And I want to not waste my life. I want my life to count. And the only way it's going to count is by becoming a living sacrifice. So, as we go through Leviticus, these two passages, Paul's appeal that we become living sacrifices. And then in the book of Revelation, where it talks about what happens to people who are living sacrifices. They are priests of God and Messiah, not according to Levi, but Melchizedek. And they'll reign with him. Priests and kings, like our high priest, Yeshua, after the order of Melchizedek. Now Leviticus gets its name after its first word. And that first word you can see here, and this photograph taken from our Torah scroll at Beth Tikkun, the word Vayikra, which means, and he called. And chapter 1, verse 1 says, Adonai called, or you could put, and Adonai called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying. Now, if you look closely at this word, you'll notice that the last letter, Aleph, is written small and up above Uh, suspended in air. And this is the only place where that occurs in the Torah, only in this word, this first word of Leviticus, Vayikra. Now, you don't really need that Aleph there. It could just be Vayikar, which means, and he met or he encountered. In fact, over in Numbers, it's chapter 26, I believe, uh, Numbers 23, verse 16. It says, Vayikar and Adonai met Balaam and put a word in his mouth. The rabbis discuss this and say, when God just encounters someone he's not particularly close to, like Balaam, it's Vayikar. But with someone like Moses, it's Vayikra. 
Now, Aleph is always a symbol of God. It's the first letter of Elohim, the first letter of Adonai. It's the first letter of the alphabet. And you notice it's lifted up. And when God calls to a person, and that person, like Moses, responds, God is elevated in that person's life. And God calls to us, and when we respond, he becomes elevated. The Aleph becomes elevated in our lives. And it says, Vayikra, and he called El Moshe to Moses, Vaidaber, and he said. Now, a question I have is, how did he call him? He called to Moses, and apparently Moses turned and paid attention, and then God spoke. And he called to Moses, and then he spoke to Moses. How did he call? Did he go, Psst, hey, over here. I'm not sure quite how it took place. But I know in my own life, sometimes you're just going along, doing whatever you're doing, and there's an internal prompt where God is kind of tapping you on the shoulder. He said, listen. And he makes me aware of a person I need to talk to or of someone I need to pray for or I need to stop doing what I'm doing because there's something else he wants me to do. I'm not sure how God calls to you, and I'm not quite even sure how he calls to me, but there are those times during the day, there's just that little vayikai, that little prompt. And if I obey, if I do things right, and I take time to listen, God is elevated in that moment. I want us to walk through this in the Hebrew a little bit, and we'll come back to this a little later because there's something else I want to show you. But this is how it works. Vayikra el Moshe vaydeber. And who called to Moses and spoke? Adonai. There is yud Hey vav Hey. There's God's four-letter holy name. We don't know how it's pronounced. So we say Hashem, the name, or we say Adonai, which means the Lord, the Master. So he spoke Eloif to him, Me'ohel Moed, from the tent of meeting. And that word Moed is the same word as Moedim, the tent of meeting is where we keep our appointments with God, and Moedim are appointed times. So we have times in our calendar where we meet with God, but we too are to be tabernacles of God's Spirit. We are to be an Ohel Moed, where God meets with us, right in the very depths of our spirit. Let's continue. Leamor, Amor means to say, so Leamor means saying, and this is what God said. Deber el B'nai Yisrael. Speak to the B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. Va'amorto elehim, and say to them. Now this is what he, the message that God wants Moses to speak to the children of Israel. I believe this is the message God wants to speak to us. And the next word is the word Adam, Adam, Adam which means a man, or in general, humankind, every human being. Now, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says a nephesh, a soul, an individual. But here it says a human being, a human being. Any human being, ki yakriv, who wants to approach or bring an approach offering. Now, this, this is the word I've been wanting to get to. You're going to see it. It's made of 
kofresh, and at the end, abate. And then right here, you see the same three letters again, kofresh, bait, from the root karav. And this word karav means to draw near. But it's also the word that's used to refer to a burnt offering, any offering that's put on the altar that goes up. This is very interesting. Because how does something draw near to God? You put it in the fire and it goes up. This is why Paul appeals to us to be living sacrifices. Do you want to draw near to God? Get on the altar. It's his elevation, elevator system. So, a person, yakriv mechim, from yourselves, a carbon, that's a, an offering, that's the word that's used throughout the first five chapters, referring to an offering. La hu la Adonai, there is Yadhevate again. The lamad in the front means to or toward, and then there's the four-letter name of God. So any Adam, any person from mankind who desires to bring a carbonin offering to Adonai, and then it goes on to give the instructions. So, we're going to come back to this, but I want to give you a little bit about the workings and the very essence and the beginning point of the book of Leviticus. Because one of the things the rabbis make quite a big deal about is this phrase right here, ki yakriv makim karbon Adonai," And that phrase is the foundation for Romans 12, 1. Because that phrase can also be translated as who brings an offering of yourselves to Adonai. That word mekem means you can make an offering from yourselves of some animal, but they also see it as meaning making an offering of yourselves to Adonai. Because whenever the, the Jewish individual would bring an offering, or a Gentile bring an offering in the tabernacle or temple, they were always to picture that animal as being a picture of themselves. Always. And when we look at the offering that Yeshua made of himself, we are to see that as a picture of us giving ourselves. This is why in Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I am crucified with Messiah. What happened to him, that's what's happened to me spiritually. I'm crucified with Messiah. I've given my life to him. Uh, I've decided to be a disciple of his. And if any man will come after me, the master says, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's a matter of constantly being that living sacrifice. Dying to my ways, dying to my desires, doing things according to God's ways and his desires. That's how we approach him. That's how we elevate the olive in our lives. That's how we truly become priests of God and of his Messiah. And that's how we will reign with him. Because that's what we're called to do. Well, let's move on. I mentioned before that Leviticus is a central book of the Torah. So if we think of the books of the Torah, these five books, as being arms on the menorah, Genesis on the right, and Deuteronomy on the left, we find Leviticus right smack in the middle. Now, something the rabbis discovered 
many, many years ago, is that there's an amazing thing that occurs with the letters of the opening letters of these uh, books. If you start with Genesis, we're going to put Genesis here on the right-hand side. And if we start with Genesis, the very first word of Genesis is better sheet in the beginning. And if we take the tav at the end of that first word, bereshit, and then we count 50 letters, we come to a vav. We count 50 more letters, we come to a resh. Count 50 more letters, we come to, well, there's no, no aleph there. Torah is only four letters in Hebrew, but we come to the hey. Tav, vav, resh, hey. In other words, the word Torah is spelled out in 50-letter intervals, starting with the first tav in the book of Genesis. Well, let's try the book of Exodus. And when we go to the book of Exodus, um, the book of Exodus starts out, these are the names, Ela Shemot. These are the names. So Shemot is the name of the book of Exodus. Shemot ends with tav. And we start with that tav. Whoops, something just went haywire. Let's get back here. There we go. We start with that tav. We count 50 letters. We come to the vav. 50 letters, we come to the resh. 50 letters, we come to the hay. Again, the word Torah is spelled out in 50-letter intervals. Now, let's skip Leviticus for a moment. Let's go to the book of Numbers. Now, in the book of Numbers, things work a little bit different. Uh, in the book of Numbers, it uh, says that God spoke to Moses in the Midbar. And Midbar, wilderness, is the first word of Numbers, so it's called Bamidbar, in the wilderness. So, Vaidabar Adonai Moshe Bamidbar. Moshe ends the letter He, and we start with the letter He of Moses' name. And then we count 50 letters, we come to a resh, 50 more letters come to a vav, 50 more letters we come to a tav. In other words, the word Torah is spelled out in 50-letter intervals in the book of Numbers, but it's backwards. Then we go to the book of Deuteronomy. You have to go to verse 5, and in verse 5 you see the word ha-Torah, the Torah. Ha-Torah starts with hey, ends with hey. And we start with that first hey of ha-Torah, and you count 49-letter intervals every 49 letters, 7 times 7. It spells out Torah once again backwards. The chances of this happening by accident are infinitesimal. There's just no chance. It just doesn't happen. There had to have been a mind at work making this happen. You may wonder, well, why is it that Deuteronomy is at 49-letter intervals instead of 50? Because the Torah is complete with Deuteronomy. Seven is the number of completion. And here we see seven times seven. So it only is fitting that it should end in 49-letter intervals. So it's almost as if the Torah radiates Torah from Genesis and Exodus and from Numbers and from Deuteronomy. It's like the light of Torah is going out forwards, backwards. It's radiating out in both directions. Well, in Leviticus, it doesn't happen. 
You don't find the word Torah spelled out in 50-letter intervals or 49-letter intervals or any kind of intervals. What we do find is in the word Vayikra, if we take that letter Yud right here, it's the second letter of Leviticus, Vayikra, Yud, and we count eight letters, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, we come to the letter He. Go eight more letters, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We come to the Vav that is in God's name, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We come to another He. Yud, He, Vav, He. We see God's four-letter name spelled out in eight-letter intervals. Why eight? Because eight is the number of life. Eight is the number of life. So though we may not like Leviticus as well as we like and enjoy Genesis and Exodus and the numbers in Deuteronomy, the reason we don't enjoy it as much is because it's more spiritual. There's not much there to tantalize the mind and the emotions. There's not much to excite us about the events in Leviticus because it's an utterly spiritual book. And so we have to put on a really spiritual mindset to lay hold of this book and to access its message to us. But if we put significance in these letter intervals and in the position of Leviticus right here in the middle of the Torah, God's trying to tell us something. It's what's taking place in the Torah of God and man meeting together in a tabernacle where God and man interact and God speaks and man hears and man brings his resources and gives them freely to God and gives them in a way that he is giving himself to God and God is receiving those. And throughout the the Torah, we read of a sacrifice being brought and if it's done with the right intentions, it says that it was a riach nekoach. It was a sweet-smelling savor in God's nostrils. A riach, a fragrance, which is almost the same as the word ruach, spirit. It's the same letters, basically. For all practical purposes, it's the same word. Because when we give our lives as living sacrifices, it is something that is spiritual. It's of the ruach. It's of the spirit. And we become a reach in God's nostrils. It's something sweet to him, something good. And it's the most purposeful and meaningful thing that we could ever do with our lives. Now, let's get down to some more practical things here. There are seven fundamentals of the sacrificial system. These are my fundamentals. These are the seven things I think of. And whenever people ask me about the sacrificial system, these are the seven things I share with them. And I suggest that you memorize these seven things. Maybe you can come up with some mnemonic that will help you remember these. Because you will have conversations with people, and when they find out you're following the Torah, they'll ask questions like, well, do you go make sacrifices in your backyard? And, of course, we don't because that would violate the Torah. You could tell them, well, you can make sacrifices if you want, but I follow the Torah and I'm not allowed. 
And we'll talk about why we're not allowed to make sacrifices right now in a bit. So, here are the seven fundamentals. Number one, most of the sacrifices were voluntary. All the sacrifices in Leviticus 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, were all voluntary. And as you go through, you'll find most of the sacrifices are voluntary. You didn't have to bring them. And just as we read there in the first verses of Leviticus, it says, if an Adam, a, a human being, wants to bring an offering, approach me with an offering, then this is how he does it, if he wants to. So, voluntary. Number two, and this shocks people, sacrifices had little to do with sin. Sin is not mentioned in chapter 1, it's not mentioned in chapter 2, not mentioned in chapter 3. Sin was not in view in these sacrifices, the first three chapters. Not until chapter 4 is the word sin introduced, and we'll get to that in a little bit. The, um, the Passover sacrifice, sin's not mentioned with that. It was not a sin offering. And so, again, sacrifices had little to do with sin. They had something to do with sin. Some of them did, but for the most part, no. Most of the sacrifices were eaten. Generally, unless it's a whole burnt offering, which means the whole thing is burnt, um, the sacrifices were eaten. They were eaten by the person who brought them. Part of them were eaten by the priest, and part of the sacrifice, as we'll see in a moment, went up and smoked to God. It was a place of table fellowship with God, and the priest kind of served as the servants, um, the, the people who would be serve as butlers, as the waiters, so to speak. And that's kind of a crass way of describing it. But it was a place where we had table fellowship with God. We don't have an altar today. There's no temple, no priesthood uh, in these days. It'll all be brought back. But for right now, there is no temple and priesthood. So we don't bring sacrifices. So during this time, the Sabbath table becomes our altar. And that is where we have table fellowship with God and with family and friends, as they did in the tabernacle and in the temple. This is also why on Shabbat it's a tradition, not a command, but tradition to put, bring two loaves of challah bread and you salt them because all the sacrifices were salted. And we make a blessing over the bread because it takes the place of the body of the, the animal. And we have a cup of wine, which takes the place of the blood of the animal. Now, the blood was never drunk, of course, but it was uh, sprinkled on the altar, poured out the base, sometimes put on the horns of the golden altar. But um, we have the example of the Passover, where bread and wine are an important part. And on Friday evenings, when we have the bread and wine, we have that ancient blessing, that ancient bit of liturgy that says, this is a memorial of our exodus from Egypt. That's Passover, which comes once a year. But every Friday night, we have a memorial of our exodus from Egypt. We don't do a full Seder. So we have the cup and we have the bread. And Yeshua says, as often as you do this, do it in memory of me. So anyways, there's much to be said about that, but we need to move on. Number four, Yeshua's death did not make the sacrificial system obsolete. Most people believe there's no sacrificial system today because Yeshua came, <coughs> excuse me, he died on the cross, rose again, so now the sacrificial, 
sacrificial system is obsolete. Well, that would not explain why the Jewish people don't do sacrifices, because many or most of the Jewish people do not accept Yeshua as the Messiah. So why would they bother not doing sacrifices? The reason the sacrifices are not done today is because, as I mentioned, there's no temple and there's no priesthood. And without a temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, and without a Levitical priesthood to officiate at the sacrifices, there can can be no sacrifices. The Torah forbids us to make sacrifices except at the place that God has designated, which is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and with a Levitical priest officiating. Now, when the millennial kingdom arrives, the temple's rebuilt, the Levitical priests are once again established, and the sacrifices resume. And this is something that is ironclad in the prophets. It cannot be avoided. It's just simply there. It may fly in the face of a lot of our traditional theology and beliefs and and Christian thinking. But it's the way it is. It just will be. And so you can always go to Jeremiah 33, and I've printed out the main passage there. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 22. And uh, it's in your notes, and you can read that, and it establishes the fact as clearly as can be that the sacrifices resume again. And that's number five. Number six, Jews have never believed that sacrifices remove sin, forgive sin, or provide salvation. This belief that Jews believe that sacrifices remove sin is something that's believed by Christians and is taught in Christianity, but it's not something that the Jews have ever believed or taught. It's not something the Bible has ever taught. It is... um, It's a a gross misconception that's propagated by well-meaning Christian theologians and teachers. But it simply isn't true. The sin offerings and guilt offerings are a way of expressing repentance for an error, for a sin that was committed. But when it speaks in Hebrews, how about how the blood of bulls and goats could never take away a person's sin, The writer is simply expressing good, sound Jewish theology. There's nothing new there. They never believed that the blood of sacrifices took away their sins. In fact, the sin and guilt offerings in chapters 4 and 5 only deal with unintentional sins. If you sin out of rebellion, you sin willfully, there is no sacrifice for that. You can go to the tabernacle all you want. You say, I sinned willfully, I rebelled. Well, there's no sacrifice for you. It's only if it was unintentional, it was done in error. So what does a person do if they've sinned willfully and then they repent of it? They do what David did when he sinned willfully with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. And when he became aware of the gravity of what he had done, He didn't rush to the tabernacle to offer a sacrifice. He knew there was no sacrifice. What he did, he threw himself on his face before God and threw himself on God's grace and mercy. That's the way it's always been. 
that's the way the Jewish people have always understood it. It's God's grace that forgives and removes our sins, not our sacrifices. Sacrifices are a way of renewing our commitment to God, expressing our remorse and our repentance, and it's a way of asking God to forgive us. But it's not the animal's blood that takes away sins. They might cover them, kapoor them. It's like painting over dirt. But only through Yeshua are sins removed. We talk about that more in future teachings. And as I mentioned, there's no sacrifice for willful sin. Make sure you review these seven basics. Maybe there should be an eighth, ninth, and tenth basic, but these are the seven in my mind. Now, I want us to look at this word. We saw it back there in that little uh, picture of our, our Torah scroll. The word korban. Korban is the word that's used for an offering. We find it in the first five chapters because the sacrifices are a korban. That's where we get our word carbon, by the way, because when you burn something, what's left in the ash is basically just carbon. So korban is the word for offering. You see it many times. But it comes from a, a three-letter root, as I mentioned before. Kof, resh, bait. There's the word. And this word has two meanings. Do you remember what they are? The first one, karav, means to approach or to draw near. And this is what it says in chapter 1. If a, a man wants to draw near to me, in fact, some translations call these approach offerings. If a person wants to draw near to God, you don't appear before God empty-handed. You come with a gift. You come before our King, our Creator, with a gift. And what is the gift, the one thing we have to give to God? It's ourselves. It's the only thing we have to give. And we're not even our own, are we? We are bought with a price. So quit stealing and withholding what God has paid for. Give him what he's paid for. If you want to draw close to him, we don't come empty-handed. We give ourselves to him. But here's another meaning for this word. It's the word innards. Yep, innards. Entrails. Guts. That's the word. Same word. No difference. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 9, it's talking about bringing a sacrifice. It says, but it's innards, and that's that word it's pronounced karev, it's innards, and it's legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar. There's a profound insight here. I mean, you can just think about the blood and guts, literally, and completely miss the spiritual. Or you can home in on this and catch what it's telling us about us. The word for the insides, the inner part of a man, and the word for drawing near are the same word. And if we want to draw near to God, we don't have to cross the street. We don't have to climb a mountain. We don't have to fly to Jerusalem. Because we draw near through our hearts, through the inner man, the innards. That is the part that draws near. We're going to be learning later on that the sacrifices were always skinned. And the hides of the sacrifices belong to the priest. So when Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, 
that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. The hides don't go on the altar. They're still here. See, mine's still here. But the innards we give to God. They're washed, they're cleansed, they go up in smoke, they go to him. So the exterior of the flesh is still here, isn't it? But the inward person's given to God. That's what took place in that parking space so many years ago. Fifty years ago, almost to be exact. So that's how we approach God. You know, Isaiah, and then Yeshua quotes this passage. In Isaiah chapter 29, God was displeased with his people. And he said, because this people draw near me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. while their hearts, their innards, far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by man. They don't have a real awe of me. They just act afraid. They show signs of fear because it's a commandment. They don't really have awe and respect of me. If they did, they would draw near to me with their innards, with their hearts. Again, the fleshly believer and the soulish believer, they're filled with activity. They can sacrifice time, they can sacrifice energy, and they can talk a lot. But until they become living sacrifices, they can't really approach into intimacy with God. Now, the book of Genesis is like the outer court of the tabernacle. It introduces us to God. Exodus is like the holy place where we begin to learn about the redemption that takes place. And we begin to see the heart of God for his people. But Leviticus takes us into the holy of holies where there's real intimate spirit to spirit, soul to soul, heart to heart, fellowship with God. Now, one of the things that people get all icky about is sacrifices seem so gruesome. And we need to address this. So, let's do it this way. And I've done this before, but this is good review. Let's say there's an animal just living out in the wild. I don't care what kind of animal it is. But that animal is living out in the wild. And of course, many of the bleeding hearts say, we want to stop hunting. The hunters are out there killing our animals. But do these people ever stop to think what happens to these animals? Do they picture these animals dying of old age, surrounded by their, their offspring, comforted them as they, they pass from this world? No. How does an animal die in nature? Well, here are several ways. It can be attacked and eaten by another animal. That doesn't sound very pleasant. Uh, in fact, I, don't, I think I'd rather have a hunter just shoot me than to be attacked by another animal and torn to shreds and eaten while I'm not even quite dead yet. So they can be attacked by another animal. An animal can become injured. Injury. It becomes injured then it can't fly or run as well, and as a result, it gets attacked and eaten by another animal. It can become ill, illness. If it becomes ill, it becomes weak, can't run away, it gets attacked and torn to pieces and eaten by another animal. 
um, it could possibly starve to death, starvation. If it lives long enough to starve to death, because when it starts starving, it gets weak and slow and gets attacked and eaten by another animal. You kind of see where this is going? How about old age? Uh, no, I don't think it's going to happen. Maybe with an elephant, but other than that, old age isn't going to happen because the moment you start getting old and weak, you're going to get attacked and eaten by another animal. So we can just cross that one off. Last time I was in South Africa, we went to a game park, and in one of the enclosures there was a cheetah. And the, um, the, the tour guide was saying, if that cheetah lives another two months, it will set the world's record for the oldest cheetah, uh, and it'll be like 15 or 16 years old. And we asked, well, how long does a cheetah normally live in the wild? He said, four to six years. Because what happens? It gets injured. It starts getting a little weak, gets sick, gets attacked and eaten by another animal. But in captivity, where all those natural enemies are uh, no longer a, uh, something to concern themselves about, this cheetah will get to die of old age. So what's the other way an animal can die, provided it's a kosher animal? It's a, a, a bull, an ox, a sheep, a goat, a dove. Sacrifice. And one of the rules about slaughtering an animal is it has to be done painlessly. It has to be done painlessly. Which way would you rather go? And there's a lesson here for us as well. You may think that you're preserving your life but not giving yourself as a living sacrifice to God, giving everything about who you are and about your future to Him. You think you may be preserving yourself. But you know what? These are the kinds of things you have look forward to. Maybe not physically so much, but spiritually. You make yourself so vulnerable to the world. No, I'd rather give myself as a living sacrifice to God. Give myself to Him. He takes good care of what belongs to Him. Now here's something else I want you to memorize, at least the overall picture. The first five chapters of Leviticus, and they're pictured by the two blue rectangles at the top, the oval in the middle, and then the two red rectangles on the bottom. These are the first five chapters. I want you to memorize this overall plan. And this is very important. And review this during your discussion time. Chapter 1 is about the olah, which is the elevation. Olah comes from the word all, which means to go up. And uh, when someone comes up to read from the Torah, it's called an aliyah. When someone moves to Jerusalem, it's called an aliyah. When they go up to the Temple Mount, that's called an aliyah, because all to go up. So an elevation offering is a whole burnt offering. That's what chapter 1 is all about. And um, you can read about it there. You'll find the word korban and korav used many times in this chapter. Chapter 2 is also a... um, a voluntary offering. It's a thanksgiving offering. Now, this offering was always grain. It was not an animal. It was always grain. And as you read through chapter 2, it will discuss the various kinds of uh, uh, pastries and bakeries, you, uh, baked items you could bring to the, um, the altar. And the thanksgiving offering is called the mincha, which really means gift 
a gift. Uh, they always had frankincense put on them. And frankincense is a picture of prayer. And the Minka offering has to do, it has a lot to teach about prayer. Now let's skip the third chapter for a moment, go down to chapters 4 and 5. Generally speaking, I say chapter 4 is about the sin offering called the Khatat, and chapter 5 about the Asham, the guilt offering. It's not quite true. The sin offering goes from chapter 4, verse 1, right on up through chapter 5, verse 13. That in chapter 5, verse 14 to the end, discusses the Asham, the guilt offering. These two can be very confusing. And I don't claim to understand the differences between them. But uh, in your group, as you discuss this, I'm sure you'll come up with insights. But here's the impression I get as I look at the guilt offering and the sin offerings. When you read about the sin offering, it's always something that's done completely in error, completely in ignorance. It, It talks about if somebody commits one of the sins of things they're not supposed to be doing. Then they find out later, oh, look what I did. I was not aware. Then it tells them what offering to bring. It starts in the beginning of the chapter if it's a, a priest, and a priest has to bring a bull, because uh, this is a big deal when a priest sins. And then the second group is if the whole congregation sins, then he, the, the congregation has to bring a bull that represents the congregation. So it says if a priest sins... If the congregation sins, and then it goes to when a ruler sins. It doesn't say if, it says when, which is kind of interesting. Because a ruler is a political figure, and there's no if about them messing up. It's just a matter of when. And then it says, and if an individual sins, and it goes on to talk about the sacrifice they bring. But the guild offering's different. When you read about the examples of the kinds of sins when a person brings a guilt offering, they look almost like they're willful sins. It talks about lying, making a false oath, um, basically stealing something, then feeling guilty, and then making it right. And there's always a confession has to be made. And as I look at this and ponder it, and you can disagree, that's fine, because this is just an idea. You take it or leave it. It seems like with the guilt offering, it comes right on the verge of a willful sin, but the person just couldn't quite not sin because they were overcome by spirit of folly, because they were so fearful, because there was too much peer pressure, because there was so much greed or maybe lust involved. They were just so overcome, they just couldn't say no. I know you can always say no, but this is like the weak person who just was overcome. (coughs) Excuse me. It wasn't something they did out of rebellion towards God because I just want to do it my way because they want to throw God behind their backs and his commandments. They were just overcome. And then after they did it, they were so guilty. They felt so guilty. And they confess and say, I can't live like this anymore. And they they come and they bring the guilt offering. That's an impression I get. It's right on the verge of being willful, but a little bit short. Now, I put these boxes in red because they have to do with sin. These top two boxes... 
turn blue because they have nothing to do with sin. They're strictly a voluntary offering. But right in the middle, in chapter 3, we have the shalomim. And you'll recognize that word shalom there. These are the peace offerings. These also are voluntary, except for the Passover sacrifice, the Pesach lamb. Because the Passover offerings are called peace offerings, but they weren't voluntary. Israel was commanded to bring those. The peace offering had nothing to do with sin. Most all of the time it is voluntary. But sometimes, once a year, it was commanded. And there are other incidences that we will come through in Leviticus where God says, okay, you need to bring a peace offering. That's something you need to do if you want to move forward here. So it's kind of in between. But I find it interesting that the shalomim, the shalom offerings, fall between the voluntary offerings of expressing gratitude to God and love for God, and then the sin offerings, the things I'm obligated to bring because I've messed up. The peace offerings are there to bring peace between God and man. So that the person who's sinful and guilty can once again come to the place where he approaches God because he just loves him and he's grateful to him. All right, so that's how I kind of map it out in my mind. Well, let's wrap this up. I want to wrap it up with a picture of the golden altar, the incense altar that was right in front of the veil. You can see it in the background here. On the other side of that veil is the Holy of Holies. And on the incense altar, this is where incense was brought, of course. You didn't put animals on here. You didn't put meat or grain, just the incense. And its purpose was to be a neoch rechoach, uh, 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 in, in God's nostrils. And it's always a picture of prayer. Now remember, there are two altars. There's the big bronze altar that's behind us. It's out in the outer court. And it's a place where the animals were brought and sacrificed. It's where meat and innards were put. And uh, there's a place of death. A lot of activity going on out there. And the bronze altar is where the, the soulish believer spends his time. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the teaching, he's one who, or she is one who sacrifices energy, sacrifices time, sacrifices resources. But in here, the priest, only the priests get to come in here to this altar. And who is the priest? Who is the priest after the order of Melchizedek? This is one who's become a living sacrifice. They've moved from just giving their time, their energies, their resources, to giving themselves completely and totally to God. They get to come to another altar. One out there made from bronze. This one's made from gold. This one may not look very big. <clears throat> And there's no death involved at this altar, but there is crushing and there is heat. And you have to stop at that altar out there before you can come to the altar in here. But this is the place that God wants us to come to. Because this is the place of prayer. Out there, everybody can watch and see all the work you're doing, all the activity you're doing. But in here, nobody sees anything. It's just you and God. This is the place where Zechariah was 
burning the incense in the, at the temple of God before the veil, when the angel appeared to him and announced that he and Elizabeth would have finally, in their old age, would have a son, John the Immerser. He was here, the angel spoke to him. This is here, the quiet area, removed from the outer court where you can hear God's voice, where he can vayikra, he can call to you. This is where God can be elevated. This is the place we can have deep connection with God. And we know that since Yeshua's sacrifice, that the veil, this veil you see, it was torn in half from top to bottom. This is a spiritual picture because for us, we can look right in the Holy of Holies and we can step in into God's presence. That's what God wants. This is what a living sacrifice does. This is what a spiritual believer can do. This is one who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek can go. Okay? Hope you think deeply about these things. Here are some questions. Number one, people in general have many misconceptions about the biblical sacrificial system. How many of these misconceptions can you identify? Number two, from memory, name the five major kinds of korbanot, the sacrifices, in order. Do them in order. The five chapters, the five kinds in order. Make sure you have these in your mind. Number three, discuss the priesthood of Melchizedek and how it applies to us as disciples of Yeshua. You can have a lot of fun with this. You need to go to Hebrews chapter 7 because that's where uh, the, the topic of the Melchizedek is laid out and explained for us. Very deep topic. And this one, if you can read Hebrew or at least know the letters and are willing to be diligent enough and you have a Bible that has Leviticus there in Hebrew, if someone in your group knows a little Hebrew, Discuss the all-important word karav and how it is used in Leviticus. How many times can you find this root in verses 1 through 9? Chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And uh, then try to find the English words that correspond, and you'll be amazed at how often this root appears, and it's different, different ways it's used. So, with that, let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you. Thank you so much for this holy book. The book of the Torah, but especially this, this heart, the spiritual beating heart of the Torah, the book of Leviticus, where you and we, your people, connect deeply, where we're invited to be living sacrifices, and we're shown how that is done. So, Father, open our minds as we enter this amazing part of your Torah. Speak to us deeply. And may we find Messiah, our high priest, there on every page. And we ask it in his name, Yeshua's name. Amen.